0: Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, Cuba. Since Cuba's 1959 revolution, the United States has attempted to undo what the revolution was hoping to achieve. The U.S. tried invasion, economic boycotts, several assassination attempts of Fidel Castro, and propaganda. Now... Thousands of protesters have hit the streets in Cuba. What's going on? This, at the time, same time as turmoil in Haiti following the assassination of Haiti's U.S. backed President, Jovenel Moise. Here's what President Biden had to say about both Cuba and Haiti.
1: The Cuban people demanding their freedom from an authoritarian regime. And I don't think we've seen anything like this protest uh, in a long, long time, if, if quite frankly, ever. Um, the United States stands firmly with the people of Cuba as they assert their universal rights. And we call on the government, the government of Cuba, to refrain from violence. their attempts to silence the voice of the people of Cuba. And we're also closely following the developments in Haiti, in the wake of the horrific assassination of the President that recently took place. The people of Haiti deserve peace and security, and Haiti's political leaders need to come together for the good of their country. Over the weekend, I dispatched a uh, a high-level expert delegation to assess the situation and to determine where the United States can offer our support. And finally, as a close neighbor and friend of the people of both Cuba and Haiti, The United States stands ready to continue to provide assistance.
0: And our guest on Cuba is Laura Carlson. And voting rights, even as Democratic legislators, flee Texas to avoid allowing yet another attempt to pass a voter suppression law. They travel to Washington, D.C., they say, to pressure the Biden administration to do more to protect voting rights. This was part of the context in which President Biden gave a speech on voting rights in Philadelphia on Tuesday, July 13th. But did he go far enough? Our guest is voting rights campaigner Barbara Arnwine. And migrants are on hunger strike in Belgium. Benoit Martin of Payday Men's Network fills us in on what's going on and also our weekly Earth Minute.
2: I'm Max Springle with these headlines. President Biden will meet with Senate Democrats today to discuss a $3.5 trillion 10-year budget agreement that Democrats reached among themselves Tuesday. The budget would fund climate change, health care, and family service programs sought by President Biden. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York told reporters the plan comes close to President Biden's spending proposal.
3: Budget resolution with instructions will be $3.5 trillion. You add that to the $600 billion in the bipartisan plan, you get to 4-1, which is very, very close to what President Biden asked us for.
2: The proposal still needs buy-in from progressives and other factions of the Democratic caucus, and Republicans are expected to reject the proposal. The number of new COVID-19 cases per day in the US has doubled over the past three weeks, driven by the fast-spreading Delta variant, lagging vaccination rates, and 4th of July gatherings. Confirmed infections climbed to an average of about 23,600 a day on Monday, up from 11,300 on June 23rd. That's according to John Hopkins University data. And all the two states, Maine and South Dakota, reported that case numbers have gone up over the past two weeks. At the same time, parts of the country are running up against deep vaccine resistance, while the highly contagious mutant version of the coronavirus that was first detected in India is accounting for an ever-larger share of infections. Nationally, 55.6% of all Americans have received at least one COVID-19 shot, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The five states with the biggest two-week jump in cases per capita all had lower vaccination rates. They include Missouri, Arkansas, Nevada, Louisiana, and Utah. President Biden made the case for preserving voting rights on moral grounds in an address Tuesday in Philadelphia. Biden has come under pressure from voting rights advocates and other Democrats to take stronger action as Republican-controlled states pass a series of laws limiting ballot access. Christopher Martinez reports.
4: Biden blasted the so-called big lie that claims Donald Trump won the 2020 election and he had harsh words for the wave of Republican-backed state election measures that have been proposed since the 2020 election and then President Donald Trump's loss at the polls.
1: This year alone, 17 states have enacted, not just proposed, but enacted, 28 new laws to make it harder for Americans to vote. Not to mention, and catch this, nearly 400 additional bills Republican members of the state legislatures are trying to pass. The 21st century Jim Crow assault is real.
4: He called on Congress to pass a pair of voting rights bills, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, and he promised to sign both. But both measures face a filibuster in the Senate where they would need at least 10 Republican votes to succeed. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez.
2: London's mayor wants people riding public transport in the city to keep wearing masks even after legal COVID-19 restrictions are lifted in Britain on July 19th. That could mean enforcement officers would be able to deny access or eject passengers not wearing masks while using the underground or city buses. More from Feature Story News' Benji Hire in London. Face
0: masks have been compulsory on public transport across England for the past year. Those laws will next week be replaced with government guidance which will simply advise passengers
5: to wear masks in crowded places. London, though, is the first English city to insist on face coverings beyond the end of lockdown, regardless of how busy the service is. Mayor Sadiq Khan explains he doesn't want to put transport users at
0: risk with the virus still spreading and cases on the rise. If
3: you use one of our services, and you uh, refuse to put a mask on and aren't exempt, you could be asked to uh, leave.
5: Benji Haya, London.
2: A new report shows that the COVID-19 pandemic may have contributed to eating disorders and other mental health issues. More from Public News Services, Diane Bernard.
6: An American Psychological Association report found more than 60% of adults experienced weight gain or weight loss during the pandemic. Connie Subchak, body image expert and author of the book Embody, says the pandemic confirmed just how harmful stress is to the human body. And while making changes in eating and exercise habits, she says folks need to take a gentle approach with themselves and be less judgmental.
7: It's really important to be kind and gentle with our bodies and recognize and honor that they helped us survive when so many people didn't.
6: I'm Diane
2: Bernard. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio.
0: And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Since Cuba's 1959 revolution led by Fidel Castro and Ernesto Che Guevara, the United States has tried its best to assassinate both leaders and overthrow its popularly supported leftist government. Although Che was killed in 1967, Fidel survived numerous assassination attempts and died um, of natural causes in 2016. And despite ongoing attempts to destabilize and isolate Cuba, its government and economic system, They are still holding on. Nevertheless, over the years, and it is to be expected in every country, there have been dissidents, there have been protests and protesters uh, against uh, the the Cuban government, particularly its uh, socialist uh, makeup. According to the United Nations, the unjust U.S. blockade on Cuba has cost the country's economy $130 billion over nearly six decades. The U.N. has adopted a non-binding resolution calling for an end to the blockade with overwhelming support every year since 1992, with Israel and the United States maintaining support for the U.S. blockade. Former President Barack Obama attempted to end key parts of the blockade, but Congress did not allow it. Despite this, he reestablished relations with Cuba, eased the travel ban on the country, permitted U.S. banks to open accredited accounts in Cuban banks, removed Cuba as a so-named quote-unquote state sponsor of terror, and met with former Cuban President Raul Castro on a trip to Cuba. President Obama and Michelle Obama, you may remember the family, did visit Cuba. By the time Donald Trump came into power in 2017, however, all of this was reversed and U.S. policy toward Cuba once again harshened. And keep in mind that Obama beat Biden in Florida uh, pretty handily and he definitely won among uh cuban exiles uh today the u.s supports dissidents in cuba by providing funds for anti-government activists and media organizations so let's go to a clip now from bbc and their take on what's happening in cuba
5: let's move on now because the cuban authorities have taken a hard line after the biggest anti-government demonstrations in 30 years After thousands took to the streets in the capital, Havana, and other cities across the country, police used pepper spray and beat some of the protesters. The crowds are unhappy with food shortages, high prices, and the authorities' handling of the COVID pandemic. Cubans have been angered by the collapse of the economy. Last year, Cuba's state-controlled economy shrank by 11%. Now, that's its worst decline in almost three decades. It's been pretty hard hit by the pandemic, too. And, of course, those U.S. sanctions imposed by the Trump administration. More than 200 new sanctions were imposed on the island's economy during Trump's tenure. And the Biden administration, well, they haven't lifted any of them. Protesters are also angry at a shortage of vaccines. The country reports a record of nearly 7,000 daily infections and 47 deaths on Sunday alone. That's twice as many as the previous week. Tania Dendrinos sent this report.
6: Chanting for freedom. Not a cry often heard in Havana. Cubans took to the streets in what the opposition has called the biggest anti-government protests in almost three decades.
4: State security beat me and my daughter. They beat us because we were walking down the street.
8: We are here because of the repression against the
3: people. They are starving us to death. Havana is collapsing. We have no house, we have nothing. But they have money to build hotels and they have us starving.
6: Demonstrations were also held in Florida where the Cuban exile community showed its solidarity. Cuba's president has blamed the United States for the unrest, laying down a threat for anti government protesters.
3: We came here to show, together with the revolutionaries of this town, that here the street belongs to the revolutionaries. No worm or mercenary will claim the streets. And if they provoke us, without violating their constitutional rights, we will confront them.
6: words spurring on supporters of the communist government
0: all righty and uh there you hear some of the sound uh from the protests in cuba and uh, you also heard that protesters spoke out against uh, reported shortages of food and medicine as well as the government's response to the ongoing uh, COVID pandemic. They also spoke out against what they describe as government censorship and mismanagement of the economy. Uh, So just sorting and helping us to sort out what's really happening, what's going on on the ground. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City, a regular contributor to America's updater, foreign policy and focus, counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. She's also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets, and she's a a regular on our weekly roundtable. So Laura Carlson, we are glad you're able to join us today. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Margaret. It's a pleasure
0: to be here. Okay, so uh, Laura Carlson, I mean, given the decades of the economic boycott of Cuba orchestrated by the United States, Should one be surprised that there is now economic hardship? I mean, a lot of people think it's amazing that Cuba has continued as it has, given that level of pressure uh, coming from the United States. Laura Carlson.
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's not surprising at all, and it's a tragic situation, which makes the manipulation of these current protests even more cruel as a geopolitical move, in large part coming from the United States. What we're seeing now is that there are people in the streets. they are not nearly the number of people in the streets that we've seen in other countries, proportionally. Um, and in fact, the, the news media has been, has been blatantly manipulating uh, both the dimensions and the demands of these protests. There's no question whatsoever that Cuba has been hit hard by the pandemic and even more so by the overall global recession and economic crisis that the pandemic has caused. They talked about 11% decline in the economy. That's about par for Latin American countries. That's a little bit more, you know, what we saw happened as a result of lockdown um, last year. And in in the context of these sanctions, the drastic sanctions that are not only from the United States, but as we know, they involve uh, sanctions against other countries that would do business with Cuba as well, which is probably an extralegal extension of U.S. power according to international law. And in the context of this, it's, it's really had a major impact. So you see people in the streets that are protesting the lack of food and the lack of medicine, which is, which is true. And then you also see some people who are protesting against the government itself. The reason I think it's an orchestrated campaign is because there's a considerable amount of evidence, just hard evidence, to indicate that in fact it is. When we began to research in some other web experts, some research where this hashtag SOS Cuba. Came from um, some of the usual international right wing suspects came up, including in Argentina and in other places, and there was a pattern of replication of exact messages, of the use of the hashtag and how it began. You know, that would indicate that we're not looking at just a grassroots opposition campaign here, but something that's, that's, been, that's been planned. And this is also not at all surprising when we consider the millions of dollars that the National Endowment for Democracy and other very wrongly called Democracy Promotion Programs in the United States have been to Cuba. Just to give an idea, there's a program of about $650,000, which may not seem a lot to giant philanthropists in the United States, but to the islands it's huge for to something they invented called the Human Democratic Directorate, and it specifically says in the description, you know, to promote the group will support civic activities carried out by civil society, activists in Cuba, produce radio programs, prioritizing um, uh, the issues such as the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the economy, and many of the issues that we've come together here. So at the same time, as they're prohibiting families from spending $20 a week to family members who who have trouble getting food, you know, and at a very difficult time, they're at the same time spending millions of dollars to promote destabilizing activities.
0: Right. And Laura Carlson, I, I read that actually just on the propaganda front, that the United States, I I think the figure was something like $24 million a year, uh, goes into supporting uh, various media outlets, um, some artists, etc, you know, to basically, uh, to push opposition to the government there in, in Cuba. And we also know that um, most Cubans, including President Miguel diaz Canal, have pointed out that the decades-long U.S. blockade in Cuba is responsible for economic woes on the island. Now, some of the protesters, a number of whom are younger, are saying, uh, not so fast. So... Uh, You know, because they don't have that historic memory of the revolution and what Cuba was like, perhaps, uh, than some of the older uh, people. But you also see that anti government protest movements supported by U.S. outfits like the National Endowment for Democracy and the Agency for International Development, I mean, underscoring your particular point. And the U.S. always had an interest in pushing Cuba to install a market-oriented capitalist um, uh, regime uh, like we have in the United States. And uh, Laura, the other thing breaking news now is that uh, Cuban-American protesters have shut down an expressway in Miami uh, this morning and uh, pushing uh, Biden to take further measure measures against the Cuban government and Cuban Americans are also rallying in Tampa. Um, Laura Carlson.
4: Well, that's probably one of them, one of the scariest things about what's going on now, the way it has been orchestrated with the Miami hardcore Cubans there, which don't represent um, the entire Cuban American community, just as the pro- protesters don't represent the entire Cuban population in um, within Cuba as well, and so we have these just really very highly illegal and um, and frightening statements coming out by the mayor of Miami. This is what is calling for open intervention at this time. Um, one of the responses that we've seen in other countries in Latin America, in particular with Cuba is is uh, it has a very played a very important role as an example of breaking out of u s. hegemony is that there's there's very serious there surprise that the Biden administration has abandoned um, Cuban policy to this hardcore group out of Miami. It wasn't something that people expected, especially after a different position within the Obama administration and so now we have once again Ted Cruz, Marco Lubio, you know, calling the shots in terms of the policy toward Cuba, which has repercussions throughout the Caribbean area and also of course throughout Latin America and Latin America as well. So there's a lot of concern and a lot of uh, of disappointment certainly on the part of um, in newspapers throughout Latin America that you can see in terms of this, this, this line that the Biden administration is taking and the way that it's giving up the authorities, in terms of the policy making here to um, you know very well-known hardcore leaders within, within Florida. So there's a lot of people that are going to pay a huge human price for that. Um, when they talk about the violence in, in, in these protests, as you can see, the violence is 100% on the side so far of the protesters. There isn't a single video of um, of a police crackdown that's happening within there. Uh, the violence has been a, against the police, um, and there have been some arrests made so far, but it's just a it Long contrast, remember the last time we talked, I was in Colombia, that was just a few days ago. And there were protests against an authoritarian government in Colombia that have been going on since April 28th. Where's the press on that one? And in the Colombian protest, 84 people have been assassinated. The majority already by all evidence available by security forces themselves. Women are being picked up by the police, and carried around, you know, ridden around in a patrol car, and sexually tortured in order to keep them from daring to go back into the streets to practice their right to civil, to civil protest. There have been over 80 young people who have lost an eye, like we saw in Chile, which is the new authoritarian government's method of making them an example of the cost of protesting in the country. But people in the streets in Cuba is not a demonstration that the Cuban government has failed. It's a demonstration that, like any other country, there are going to be people who are protesting. That's part of how a democracy operates. And to use that to say, see, the government failed, is completely contradictory to any kind of standard we apply to any other country.
0: Yes, and including uh, the United States. I'm so glad you, you brought out the example of Colombia, and it was only recently that the Caribbean region, in fact, most of the world yet again called for an end of this kind of economic pressure because it was pretty much Trump and, and some of his uh, predecessors, Republican predecessors, saying that what we have to do with Cuba is to starve people out. And that's what the economic boycotts are about. So it's not surprising at all that people have taken uh, to the streets um, on, on this. And also, it's, it's given, uh, you know, a new lease of life, it seems, on the uh, Cuban-Americans in Florida uh, who are so supportive and enamored uh, by the GOP. Um, but uh, Laura uh, Carlson, I mean, you have spent time on the ground uh, in Cuba, and, you know, over the years, we've heard of things like uh, black people in Cuba, that some black people in Cuba are saying, uh, talking about racism in Cuba when the government was trying to say there was no such thing as racism in Cuba, which we all know, black people everywhere know that that likely is not true because wherever we are in the world, we see the darker we are, there seems to be that level of discrimination against us. So there there has been this kind of tug of war of, of opposition in Cuba trying to uh, get their message out and their voices heard with the backing of millions of uh, U.S. dollars. So you're taking just the, the reality on the ground. But before that, I just want to play a short clip because it wasn't only the people... Uh, protesting and it was interesting the bbc focused on the fact that they were protesting against uh food shortages uh, you know economic issues as well as what was happening with covid but there were also pro-government protesters and i just want to play a short clip of that and then have you give your final thoughts laura carlson
6: Words spurring on supporters of the communist government, some taking it upon themselves to surround and detain those demonstrating, while others staged counter-protests.
2: We are defending what we did 60 years ago, that this is ours, that it has cost many lives, that capitalism will never come back here again, and that these mercenaries, paid by the empire... Will never again take our streets. They will have to kill us all first.
0: They'll have to kill us all first. Um, uh, Laura Carlson, very, very passionate uh, person there, uh, believing in the. Cuban revolution. Laura Carlson, your final thoughts, because Cuba has, it seems that they have really held on against what people are calling the empire. For decades now, since 1959, they somehow have managed to survive. When you see the United States throughout the Americas, when there is a government that isn't um, committed to capitalism, committed to the kind of uh, market economy that is practiced in the United States and parts of Europe, although Europe does have uh, much more of a welfare state than the United States does. Uh, So just give us your final thoughts here on the significance of Cuba. Yeah, well, and
4: I'm very glad for the question about the protest, because... um, because it's important to say that Cuba could, the Cuban government, could have responded better, to in my opinion, to these protests. That uh, it could be a very important moment for them to open up into a dialogue. They have even recognized that there are supporters of the revolution who are within the protests, but that are just feeling like the food shortages. And the general standard of living amidst this crisis is unbearable at this time. There's exaggerated messages. There's no proof whatsoever that anyone is dying of hunger, as the press has been wont to say. You know, but, but it's a very difficult time. And instead of calling out pro-revolutionaries to the street, which could exacerbate tensions, you know, it could be a moment to say, this is what we're dealing with. These are the impacts of the sanctions. These are, this is how we're doing with COVID. Fifteen percent of the population is vaccinated. They're still working on their, um, you know, they're still working on vaccinations, their own vaccinations. But to just explain very openly to, to the population what's going on, because there is a lack of historical memory. It is hard for young people to accept sacrifices. Um, that are the result of actions that didn't happen within their lifetime to understand how the world economy is working against them um, and creating creating pretty serious hardships within their lifetime. So, so that would be a response that made a lot more sense. And on the part of the U.S. government, 243 maximum pressure measures by Donald Trump. And Joe Biden could lift those with a pen, and he has not done so. There's a possibility of taking a humanitarian approach at this point. What if we just said that human lives matter more than capitalist ideology? You know, what if we just said that family reunification and the the ability to live a dignified life in your own, in your own home, in your own way through self-determination is what we stand for? Our policies would look completely different, and life. Four Cubans on the ground would look completely different as well. So the further we can move toward that, and the further that people look critically at what they're hearing in the news and at what they're hearing about life in Cuba, of course it's not perfect. No one's saying it's a paradise, you know? We know there's racism, we know there's sex, we know there's significant advances in human development and humans that are recognized worldwide. Um, There's just no point in the persecution that's gone on now for years since the revolution and that's really damaged so many lives.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much, Laura Carlson, shedding some light for us on what's going on. And for those of us in the Caribbean region, of course, I hail from the Caribbean region uh, and also on the continent of Africa, there is such a different image of uh, Cuba um, than we here in the United States, uh, Cuba is known for all of its assistance to the Caribbean region as well as the continent. So, Laura Carlson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a short station break, and coming up, our weekly Earth Watch, uh, Biden's speech, and the latest on voting rights, and uh, what's going on in Belgium with migrants on a hunger strike.
4: De alto cedro voy para Marcané, llego a Puerto voy para Mayarí. De alto cedro voy para Marcané, llego a Puerto voy para Mayarí. De alto cedro voy para Marcané, llego a Puerto voy para Mayarí.
0: All righty, and that is Kampesuguno, and the song is Chan Chan, of course, music from Cuba. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. And we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And uh, in the United States, we would like to give a shout-out to our SoundCloud listeners in Claremont, Florida. That is in Claremont, Florida. And internationally, we would like to give a shout-out to our SoundCloud listeners in France. And uh, we are now going to go to our weekly Earth Minute. And then Barbara Arnwine, waiting to speak with us. Uh, She's a voting rights campaigner. You won't want to miss that. We'll be right back.
9: A record-breaking heat wave struck the United States Pacific Northwest last week, resulting in nearly 200 deaths. In Oregon, health authorities reported 116 deaths, while Washington State reported 78. This area, known for its mostly moderate climate, is experiencing record temperatures as evidenced by climate change. Western Canada also felt the effects of this heat wave, reporting as many as 500 deaths and sparking wildfires in the province. According to the Guardian, the fresh data on fatalities comes as a new analysis found that the deadly heat wave would have been virtually impossible without human-caused climate change, which added several extra degrees to scorching record temperatures. The evidence is clear that dramatic weather events, major flooding, and historic forest fires are the result of climate change, for the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project.
0: And this is this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. On Tuesday, July 13th, President Joe Biden delivered an impassioned speech in Philadelphia about the need to protect voting rights. Biden described the fight against voter suppression laws as the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. He called out Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election as a big lie. He also called on Democrats to continue to work to pass federal voting rights legislation and urge Republicans in Congress to stand for what's right now this after he's uh biden has been coming under tremendous pressure from civil rights leaders and black communities across the country saying hey you guys are not meaning you're the biden administration not doing enough to ensure voting rights let us go to um, a clip now from cbs on this
8: this is the strongest language yet from the president about what he calls an assault on democracy. And while he said that he'll do all he can to fight it, he stopped short of calling for filibuster reform. Maybe. President Biden went to the historic place where the U.S. Constitution was signed to push for the sanctity of the ballot box.
1: There's an unfolding assault taking place in America today, an attempt to suppress and subvert the right to vote. And fair and free elections.
8: His speech comes as a handful of mostly Republican-led states have passed restrictive voting measures and less than two weeks after the U.S. Supreme Court upheld two Arizona voting rules. One of those rules bans third-party collection of mail-in ballots, and the other allows election workers to discard ballots cast in the wrong precinct.
1: 21st century Jim Crow assault is real. And we're going to challenge it vigorously.
8: President Biden has thrown his support behind two voting rights bills. One is named for late civil rights icon and Congressman John Lewis. And the other is the House passed for the People Act, which was blocked by Senate Republicans. More than 50 Texas state Democratic lawmakers fled a special session in Austin for Washington, D.C. They're demanding Congress take action. It is the second time this year they've walked out to stop their Republican-led state legislature from passing new voting measures that include adding ID requirements for mail-in ballots and giving more powers to partisan poll
1: watchers.
5: Texas Democrats will use everything
8: in our power to fight back.
1: I think it's pretty obvious that this is nothing more than a political stunt.
8: Texas GOP Senator John Cornyn blasted the move, and Governor Greg Abbott has threatened to have them arrested and brought back to the state house when they return. And the White House says Vice President Kamala Harris will meet this week with the Texas legislators who fled the state. Last week, she announced the Democratic National Committee will add $25 million to its existing efforts to register and turn out voters.
0: All righty, and I'd now like to welcome our guest, Barbara Arnwine. We'd like to welcome her again to Sojourner Truth, veteran civil rights and human rights leader and advocate currently the president and founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition for 26 years. She held it down as the executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. And I'd like to note that her replacement actually has now uh, been named as part of the Biden team. Barbara Arnwine achieved national and international renown for her work on the 1991 Civil Rights Act, the creation of the 20. 20- 11 voter suppression uh, map of shame. And she continues in this vein doing uh tirelessly it seems uh, it seems as though um barbara arnwine practically every other time i talk with you you either had just been arrested doing civil disobedience or planning on <laughs> being arrested and doing civil disobedience so we're glad that you have the time to be with us this morning and you're not in jail uh barbara protesting this outrage of uh, the the taking away of the right to vote for so many of us barbara arnwine welcome Thank you so much for having me. And yes, uh, my next arrest is tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, You see that? So we we picked the right day then. But uh, Barbara, (laughs) now a big deal was made of this speech of Biden. You know that there was a meeting of civil rights leaders um, with him. And people really not happy at all uh, complaining that the Biden-Harris team is certainly not doing enough uh, to make sure to ensure the right to vote, especially following the uh, most recent, the July 1st US Supreme Court uh, decision that basically gave uh, uh, red states a green light to further suppress voting rights. So your reaction to uh, Biden's speech um, any substance you think?
7: Well, I thought, Barbara uh, you know, yes, I thought there was a, it was well delivered, it was forceful, he did a good job of reciting, you know, the historic barriers. He made a lot of promises as far as you know, uh, the Department of Justice redoubling the size of their voting rights division. He, uh, I thought, did a good job of laying out the case of the evil of voter suppression. and uh, in, in fact, you know, introducing the term of election subversion uh, repeatedly throughout his speech, uh, that he um, really did a good job of educating the American people about the issues regarding the county of votes, how many of these evil voter suppression measures are designed uh, to change who counts the votes, making the outcome very, very suspect. Um, and I thought that he did a good job of talking about uh, the sweep of ways that we have to respond uh, to this crisis, not only legislatively, uh, but also in the courts, et cetera. Uh, and his democracy or autocracy uh, point was well done. I thought he did a, a good job of... Um, Also, uh, speaking to, um, you know, Have You No Shame, Uh, that was, I think, one of the highlights of the speech. Um, There were a lot of, you know, good ones. However, beyond all of that, beyond the sound and the fury, there were some real misses, and I don't understand why. Um, And I really felt it was kind of misplaced to be talking about creating a coalition of faith leaders, civil rights groups. We're already out there. We're already doing you know, amazing work. That's how 2020 happens because we did all that work of reaching out to people, turning out 17 million more voters. I just, I found that a little frustrating that that, that was one of the ending points. I thought that was a nullity. Um, but there were... Other things that I just thought were missing, Margaret, and I'm very perplexed as to why they were missing.
0: Yeah, and I mean, what so a, a lot of people are scratching their heads on it. I mean, considering it was really Black women's vote in a lot of ways that yes. that um, gave that win to to Biden and uh, Clyburn. I'm I'm wondering what you thought because some. He he put forward a proposal that seemed to be a little bit of a compromise somehow to try to get something through uh, Congress, um, you know, without fully, fully taking on uh, the filibuster. And right now, it it looks as though there is no room uh, for either of these bills to move forward without something dramatic really happening. Barbara Arnway. Right. I thought
7: there was a number of things that were missing. I would say there were at least five key elements that were missing from his speech. One, he did not call for no August recess until these bills are passed. Mm. Why would we be talking about the Senate going on recess on August 9th if it hasn't done its job? He could have called for that. He could have also called as many people have pointed out for filibuster reform he's not going to get any of this legislation without uh so you can't be saying to everybody that you want them to swim and there's no water around he knows that he has to move to open up the ability to have these bills passed they cannot pass without filibuster reform uh certainly we did not hear, hear him talk about his LBJ moment. You know, LBJ didn't just give a speech to the nation. LBJ didn't just introduce the uh, 1965 Civil Rights Act, We, uh, a Voting Rights Act in this case. We know that he actually had meeting upon meeting upon meeting. There's pictures of all these meetings he had with uh, senators who he knew weren't wholeheartedly supporting the legislation or who were standing in the way. And where is his pledge to use his bully pulpit in that way? Uh, he yeah. needs to be calling in a whole lot of senators because it's Mansion, it's Cinema, but it's a whole lot of other people who are hiding behind them who aren't standing up the way they should be doing uh, that was very, uh, you know, that's uniquely within his power. I thought it was interesting that he'd never mentioned D.C. statehood. Uh, you know, we, he mentioned uh, the For the People Act. He mentioned the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Those are powerful, needed, critical pieces of legislation. But the Senate also has sitting up in front of it D.C. statehood. No mention whatsoever. Uh, I also thought. He could have, its uh, advisors could have creatively advised him to say that he would take to the road, that he and the vice president would take to the road and would go out to these voter suppression states where they have passed these uh, 28 bills already of voter suppression in 17 states, that they would go there and meet with voters and let voters know. And encourage them. There's so much that was missing, uh, and I did not understand any of these misses because they're significant misses. Uh, because you can't promise and not deliver on the promise. And that's right. Last night was. I heard yesterday. I heard a wonderful promise, but I heard no method of delivery
0: absolutely I think uh, that's the view of, of so many people uh, Barbara Arnwine we are going to continue of course to be following this tomorrow we'll be speaking <laughs> with the Reverend Liz Theo Harris a joint coordinator of the Poor yeah. People's Campaign they're planning oh, a yeah. whole series they've begun a series of civil disobedience actions around the issue of, of voting rights but also poverty and the fight for 15 etc so we're going to continue this coverage so we'll be talking with you again soon and Barbara be be well and safe. All the best um, with all your yes, <laughs> activity and, coming up. And, yeah.
7: And, well, you know, Saturday we're having those Don Lewis candlelight vigils all over the country at eight o'clock, and okay. we're asking people because we can all stand in this gap too, make demands for change. And so we're asking people to join these vigils. There's hundred. There's over a hundred of them being held around the country. People can go to Good Trouble dot org, and find out uh, where there's uh, a vigil in your area, and you can join and help lead. We really must all be in this fight.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. We'll, we'll post that information on our social media. All the best. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. All righty. We are now going to wrap our show up with uh something that's not getting much uh media attention in the United States at all. Uh, we turn our attention to Belgium, of all places, where a hunger strike by hundreds of migrants uh, living in Belgium. They refer to themselves as sans papier without uh, papers, or in the United States, what would be known as undocumented people. Uh, to fill us in on what's going on, I'd like to welcome uh, Benoit Martin, member of Payday, a network of men working with the Global Women's Strike. Benoit met um, the Yellow Vest protesters when he was in the south of France in December. He has been following not only that movement, but following movements in Europe, including what is happening now in Belgium. Uh, Benoit, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here.
0: Yeah, so Benoit, fill us in on, on what is going on in Belgium
3: well as you said there's been a hunger strike by about 450 uh undocumented migrants since 23rd of may so we're talking about 50 days now so it's quite serious in terms of uh, risk that these people are ready to take they have taken uh occupation in a church and also in two uh places in universities in brussels uh since uh, january they want their paper, that is, they want to be able to live a normal life, as they, they put themselves. If you are undocumented, people have to be aware that you have access to no rights or no resources that uh, citizens of the country you live in uh, can enjoy. For example, uh, the hunger strikers have disclosed the kind of job they are they have been doing and the kind of wages they have been uh, doing, uh, receiving. Uh, a lot of the women, uh, some papier, for example, who are doing cleaning, who are doing caregiving work, who are doing waitressing, they receive a, a, as little as $4 an hour, while the uh, minimum w- wage in Belgium is about $11. So if you are undocumented, you cannot have access to all these protections that are available to others including if you if you are raped you can't really go to the police because you are always under threat of deportation so you can't use these services that's why since the 23rd of may they've taken this unprecedented collective action to be on hunger strike until the government uh, give them their paper or what they call regularization and Sadly, the government hasn't budged, despite the enormous support that the uh, saint have received, both in Belgium, there's been hundreds of organizations supporting them, there's been open letters signed by hundreds of academic and intellectual. We've seen now uh, support action in, outside Belgium, in France, in Germany. Uh, in here, in, in in the UK where I'm, I'm based, uh, people have been calling to uh, contact the Belgian embassy to press them. Because I have to tell you, Margaret, these people, these sans-papiers, are ready to go uh, all the way. They've, many of them have said, we have no choice anymore. we we rather die than live like we have been living for many years a lot of them have been in Belgium for 10, 15 years in that kind of conditions. So this is quite a battle. Uh, it's becoming more international. I think the Washington Post and other outlets, I saw some of the press in the UK, uh, mainstream press, that is, is started to talk about that. And we can see that the some in Belgium are really struggling to all the migrants at the moment in putting their demand. And we've seen particularly with the pandemic, a lot of migrants coming together, whether they were their refugees or whether they're what is called economic migrant or whether they're students or even uh, people who have been legally living in the country and who have lost their visa or who have finished their, their time. Uh, becoming then illegal as far as the government is concerned. So we've seen this coming together of these various strands of of migrants demanding one thing, to have their paper, to have their status, to have a regularization that would give them uh, the same rights and the same access to the same resources as everybody else.
0: Yeah, and and Benoit, uh, tell us a, a, a bit about where these migrants hail from, all right? And because, you know, we have... Some of the press articles about uh, so many migrants dying in, you know, the Mediterranean, other places, mm-hmm. trying to flee uh, the continent mm-hmm. of Africa, West Africa, North Africa, to try to get into uh, Europe, where they are not mm-hmm. welcomed. So, tell us mm-hmm. a bit about uh, where these migrants hail from. And I, I, and you're right. I read an article that uh, some of the migrants are sewing their mouths shut so that they couldn't yep. be force fed as a way of ending mm-hmm. this hunger strike so this is this is very serious here people really putting their lives on on the line protesting what back in the day people would call fortress Europe meaning Europe um, being very unwelcoming uh, to migrants coming coming uh, from the global south and and Belgium was a huge colonial power. Look at what Belgium did in the Mm -hmm. Congo, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just your final thoughts, Benoit.
3: Well, uh, most of the, as you said, most of all of them really come from the global south, from Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, but also a lot from Africa, Algeria, Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, Nigeria, and Ghana. So really people have like it's been the whole history of migration, people are going where the wealth that they have produced has been uh, stored, if you like, going back to the country of the north to find a better life for themselves and their children. And so they have done that, and they have trying now to make uh, their situation uh, regularised because otherwise, you know, they, they are both at risk of being sent back to the misery in their country or continue uh, to live in very, very precarious and destitute situations. And I want to say one final thing. Maybe we uh, that is payday and also the women of color in the global women's strike, we have made a call for people wherever we are uh, in the world to contact the Belgium embassy to put pressure on them because there's a lot of pressure going on inside belgium but that's quite important it's very important that because belgium you know these government they are worried about one thing is their international reputation and we want to tell uh, the, all the embassies that we are watching whether we are in the united states whether we are in the uk in france anywhere in the world so we invite people to follow this call Uh, you'll have the information on our website at refusingtokill.net. And it's quite a simple thing to do, but it's quite an important one to do. So if you're part of an organization or even if you're an individual, contact the ambassador and the, um, you know, the representative of the Belgian government in your country. And I have to say one thing also. When we support migrants, we're not just doing them a favor. We're doing a favor to us all, to ourselves because the reason uh, employers, for example, are able to keep the, the wages low is because they know very well that they have migrants who are ready, as I said, to work for $4 an hour. So if you eliminate that, you also improve your situation, You know whether you have paper or, or no paper. So it's really an invitation for everybody uh, to, uh, to support them and to support themselves in doing so. And I, I want to mention one last right. thing. Okay. Is that that that, move, that movement is continuing, and I know in Canada there's been a lot of action taking place, will take place next week about uh, the, the same situation of the sans-papier. Right.
0: Well, thank you so much, uh, Benoit Martin. We are out of time. Could you just give us that website one more time, the payday website? Refusing,
3: worth refusing, to kill. refusingtokill.net net and uh, see, uh, the information. Thank you Margaret, thank you very much
0: Thank you, thank you so very much We are out of time, today's show produced by Margaret Prescott I'd like to thank, that's me, our audio engineer Kiana uh, Williams uh, our assistant producer Romero Funes and all of today's guests. If you'd like a copy of today's show you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org and thank you so very Much for listening, and you all remember to please stay
4: safe.